Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Military History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Porter Blackburn, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Steve Vogel about his new book, Betrayal in Berlin, the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. Uh, And I wanted to say right out of the box, This book, Betrayal in Berlin, is fantastic. I read it from cover to cover. Uh, Just a great story. Uh, Interesting, informative, exciting. A lot of plot twists. The characters, uh, the personalities, everything. Uh, It was just a highly enjoyable book. Great. Well, thank you for saying so. Yeah. Yeah, just really, really nice. Um, so I, I want to be careful I don't give away too many of the interesting bits of information about this book, but there are so many. So I just wanted to start at the top, just at a high level uh, for our listeners. This book is about a tunnel, but it's a very special tunnel that was built in Berlin, Germany in the 1950s by American and British intelligence to tap into phone lines used by the Soviet Union. And I want to get into the body of this book with you, Steve. Uh, But before we do, I want to really quickly go through your bio, and then we'll get into the book itself. So for our listeners, Steve is a veteran journalist who reported for the Washington Post for more than two decades. He covered the fall of the Berlin Wall and the first Gulf War, as well as military operations in Somalia, Rwanda, the Balkans, and Iraq. His coverage of the war in Afghanistan was part of a package of Washington Post stories selected as a finalist for the 2002 Pulitzer Prize. He also covered the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon. Steve is also the author of Through the Perilous Fight, Six Weeks That Saved the Nation, and The Pentagon, A History. Now, on top of all that, Steve was born in Cold War Berlin. Additionally, Steve's father was stationed in Berlin, working for the CIA from 1957 to 1962. So this is an amazing background for Steve. So I'd like to start off with my first question, Steve. Could you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Well, it was it was some of those ties you just mentioned, you know, having been born there um, a little bit uh, after the you know the tunnel operation took place. Um but uh, before the wall uh, was built. So I was there when the wall went up, in fact. And, um, you know, my dad used to joke later that uh, that was no coincidence. They'd, they'd put it up to keep me out. But uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, went back as a, as a student. I, you know, I studied uh, German in high school and, uh, and in college. And I went back on a bike trip through Europe and went uh-huh. through Ch- uh, Checkpoint Charlie yeah. uh, in the, uh, uh, late seventies. And then, um, fortunately ended up, uh, back in Germany as a journalist, uh, working as a reporter, uh, writing for the army times, uh, as well as uh, stringing for some other 
papers and happened to arrive in Germany in 1989, just a, a couple of months before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So uh-huh. I ended up covering that. And uh, initially, I'd only planned on, on being in Germany for a few months, but I ended up staying there for five years and uh, you know, covered uh, the end of the Cold War, the um, uh, collapse of the Warsaw Pact, and uh, all, the, all the amazing events that accompanied that. And just based on that, um, my father had died uh, uh, quite a while ago, but uh, been in touch with many of his uh, closest friends and sometimes mm-hmm. would hear some of the stories of the old days in, in Cold War Berlin. And um, I just had always felt drawn to um, that era and uh, mm-hmm. managed, ended up picking this story about the tunnel as, as being, you know, one of the, I think, uh, most amazing, less known Cold War stories. Yeah. Yeah. And what an amazing story it is. And I have to say, when I was reading the book, I had to keep stopping and thinking to myself, this is a real story. This is not fiction. This is not a spy thriller that somebody kind of uh, cooked up on their own. It's all true. And it it was just unbelievable. Yeah. I I kept thinking of that. A lot of that stuff you just can't make up. It's sometimes better. I know. (laughs) To just let the truth. Uh, tell itself because, uh, yeah, a story like this, especially. Yeah. Um, and I just love the way all the pieces, so to speak, fit together, uh, as, as, as you read through the book, you introduce, um, a lot of, to me, fascinating people. And they're, in fact, to me, there's just so many interesting characters in the book. Maybe we don't have enough time to go through all of them, but I want to call out a couple of them. If you don't mind talking about them, during this interview. And the first one that comes to mind is a central figure in the book who is a gentleman named George Blake, who was a mole for the Soviet Union. And could you talk to us a little bit about that particular person? Yeah. I mean, uh, even when this this uh, book picks up the narrative, he, he'd already led uh, quite a storybook life. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, his, uh, his father had um, been a... a, a come from Turkey and had fought for uh, the British during World War One. He'd become a British citizen and um, had gone to Holland at the end of World War One with the British Army and and um, married a Dutch woman and their their um, their first child was was they named George after King George and um, uh, George Blake uh, his father died when he was uh, quite young and the the family was in uh, uh pretty much bankrupt and George was sent to um live with wealthy relatives in Egypt who saw to his schooling and uh, he comes back to Holland um just in time for the outbreak of World War II and ends up uh, uh missing the evacuation with his mother to to go to England and uh instead lives uh, as as a you know, basically a 14 year old, uh, school boy becomes a, um, a, um, more or less a courier for the Dutch resistance and living underground for the next year, um, undertaking all kinds of, um, pretty dangerous missions, delivering messages and so forth. And he begins to fear that he's going to be arrested by the Nazis and makes, makes his escape through Europe and ends up, uh, um, uh, arriving in England and, you know, serving in the Royal Navy, and because of his skills as a uh, underground and and language skills that he had, he's recruited by British intelligence, 
and um, by the uh, the time that uh, our story begins, he is uh, he's been sent to to Korea as the head of um, the SIS British Secret Intelligence Service station in in Korea, and he once again he's arrived just in time for the outbreak of a war. Um, with yeah, he's he's always in these uh, uh, in these incredible uh, situations, and he's taken prisoner by the North Koreans um, and uh, undergoes all kinds of um, horrendous treatment along with a, a number of American GIs who he was held prisoner with. But um, without going into too much of the story, he comes back um, uh, to England when he's released, uh, given a hero's welcome back in England, and. He's assigned to a very sensitive role in British intelligence, but unbeknownst to, to anyone, um, he has made the decision to turn sides and work for the KGB. Yeah, and you kind of touch on something that I kept thinking as I read the book, which I enjoyed so much, is that there are so many parts of this book where you, the reader thinks, okay, so I think I know where we've progressed to, and then the book goes in a different direction or a, a person makes a different decision or something. And I thought George Blake uh, was such an interesting character that he seems so agile. Just He's just dealing with life situations over and over again for just years and years on end. Yeah, to this day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to this day. Yeah, so I thought he was extremely interesting. Um, and of course, the other person, if you don't mind just chatting with us a little bit about, was Mr. Bill Harvey. Uh, who was with the CIA, and he's characterized as the brains behind the American and British effort to build the tunnel. But I thought he was so colorful and so interesting, and I love the way you described him in the book. Can can you tell our listeners a little bit about Bill Harvey? Yeah, I mean he's he's uh, one of these these guys that uh, you would think was was drawn from a, a spy fiction novel, but. Uh, He's he's not at all your your typical or or sort of the perceived um, uh, typical CIA officer of the 1950s. You know, one of these Eastern establishment um, Ivy League type uh, characters. And, and instead, this is a you know he's basically a a, a guy from Indiana, a, a G man. He'd worked for the FBI, heavy drinker, you know, big bulky guy, and. Uh, quite uncouth in many ways, but at the same time, very smart. And uh, for the FBI, he becomes uh, one of their top Nazi hunters during the war, a a guy who um, is able to break up some of the Nazi spy rings uh, operating in the United States during World War II. And then uh, at the end of the war, he is turned on to uh, Soviet um, infiltration into the United States. And he becomes uh, really the leader of the first efforts to counter Soviet espionage in the United States after World War II. And uh, he, he ends up falling afoul of J. Edgar Hoover, the, the head of the FBI, because of you know, his, his um, uh, tendency to thumb his nose at authority and his, his heavy drinking uh, leads him to you know, fall asleep in his car in the middle of <laughs> Rock Creek Park in D.C. And, and um, he, um, he ends up quitting the FBI and the CIA, which was a, you know, the new intelligence, uh, operation was only too, too happy to, to hire him because they, they desperately needed someone with his expertise about Soviet intelligence. And he, he found a new home there. 
Yeah, I, I I found that character so fascinating throughout the whole book. And and like you're saying, he was very effective at his job at the same time, but he kind of didn't fit the mold that maybe people would have of a person achieving those types of goals. Yeah, um, he, he had a real nose for a spy. He was just, I mean, he's yeah. the guy who ends up really fingering Kim Philby as a spy for the Soviets, you know, when, yeah. when yeah. other people, including the, you know, the famous James Angleton um, were more or less lulled into thinking that that uh, you know Philby was completely trustworthy. It's it's Harvey who who begins to suspect that, and so he he's uh, you know he's extremely effective for the CIA. Yeah, um, I want to touch on just the the city of Berlin, uh, the locale of where this tunnel ultimately gets built because we are in the 1950s and you touch on it. You have a couple of passages in your book that touches on this, but I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about it in this interview. Is that what made, what was Berlin like in the 1950s? Why was it so special? Yeah, it was, it was a pretty unique place uh, in the world at that point. I mean, it was really the epicenter of um, cold war espionage and that a lot of that is by virtue of geography. Um, you know, of course, Berlin is situated in uh, the eastern side of the Iron Curtain. It's in in the borders of East Germany. Um, yet it's a, a city that's occupied by the four um, allied powers of World War II. So you have uh, United States, Great Britain, and uh, France on the western side of, of Berlin, each operating their own sector. Then you have the Soviet sector on the east side. And um, this is really the one window that uh, the Western allies have behind the Iron Curtain because we'd had very little success operating any kind of espionage operations um, behind the Iron Curtain. Stalin was rolling up any any uh, attempts we made to, to put agents uh, into, into the Soviet Union. So we were getting very little information of, about this huge Red Army presence that uh, maintained um, uh, you know a large footprint in Eastern Europe, including of course in East Germany, and so Berlin is is kind of our window behind the, the Iron Curtain, and it's also a place where you have this free flow. This remember this is of course before the wall is built, so even though it's a divided city, there's free transit across the borders, the sector borders. So 10,000 people or more every day are going back and forth, you know, to jobs, to visit relatives, to buy, you know, go to the stores. And a good number of these people are um, involved in espionage of some sort or another. So you have, um, you know, the U.S. is recruiting people from the East to to bring information over to the West and, uh, um, of course, vice versa. So, it, you know, it was described as one CIA officer there at the time as, as this cross between Casablanca and Dodge City because it's, a you know, a lot of kidnappings going on and all kinds of stuff. So it's also the epicenter, the, the center of um, communications for Eastern Europe. You know, all the uh, communication lines come into Berlin uh, like the hub of a wheel. So you have all these spokes coming in, connecting to, you know, Bucharest, Moscow, and then um, other points east and then onto the west. So this this makes Berlin uh, a vital uh, place for both the east and west during the Cold War. Yeah. And I thought it was fascinating the way you explained that in the book. And again, I want to, again, mention the name of the book for our listeners. It's Betrayal in Berlin. The True Story of the Cold War's Most Audacious Espionage Operation, written by Steve Vogel, who we are 
honored to have with us on our podcast for an interview today. Um, so yeah, the, I just thought that was so interesting the way you explained to, to the readers, folks, this is what Berlin was like in the 1950s. And then the book gets to the point where it starts talking about the decision to dig the tunnel and all the various people involved with this, this decision. Um, and it seems like it, it got approval at very, very high levels within the U.S. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, uh, the, the U.S., of course, is is desperate for good information. Um, Eisenhower um, was had, had uh, been sworn in as president, and he was very frustrated at the lack of um, of almost any intelligence he was getting about the the Soviets, and uh, he was uh, he was quite fearful that, uh, particularly now that the Soviets had exploded their own nuclear weapons, they'd managed to uh, through um, uh, spy ring get get a hold of some of the Manhattan Project secrets. They'd um, they'd explode their own nuclear weapon uh, in 1949, then a hydrogen bomb in 1953, and um, Eisenhower was desperate for good intelligence. And so was Winston Churchill in Great Britain. Churchill had come back to power. So uh, Eisenhower and Churchill, these comrades from World War II, are, are pushing their intelligence agencies to to get better intelligence. Uh, uh, Eisenhower is actually quite fearful that he might be put in a position where he has to launch his own preemptive strike against the Soviets out of fear that they're going to launch one against him. So he, he's, uh, he's seeing this as a, you know, possible nuclear Pearl Harbor. And the, the, it didn't, uh, it didn't take much to, uh, convince, you know, Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, uh, to go forward with this, this expensive and, and risky project. And, and it gets the okay from, from Eisenhower and Churchill as well. Yeah. And then uh, there are some passages in the book that talk about the decision-making process as to where they're going to begin digging the tunnel, uh, which I'm not going to get into that too much right now. Suffice it to say, it's as interesting as so many sections of this book, just the whole thought process and in addition to just the decision to do it and all the levels of government that were aware of it and felt it was an urgent and important project. Um, and then uh, it, it just was amazing that George Blake tells the Soviets about the tunnel and they end up doing nothing. And right. Yeah. It, well, you know, uh, one thing to, to keep in mind is even though this gets the, the approval at the, the highest levels of uh, both uh, the U.S. and, and uh, Great Britain, the number of people who know about it is you, you, you're talking about a handful, literally, um, in, in each country. So um, it, it's Bill Harvey who's running the operation, who who, who sent to Berlin to, to, to uh, oversee this tunnel. Um, you know, he's got a, a, a base there in Berlin and even his deputy doesn't know about the tunnel. Um, he's, he's doing this, um, in secret from his own staff, essentially. He, he's only got one or two people that he brings into the operation. Um, so, and then, um, even though uh, they also have to bring in, uh, the army Corps of engineers, to, to dig the tunnel. But again, um, this is something that's very close hold. And, um, you have one, uh, team of, of engineers that are put on this assignment that they, they don't even know where they're going to be 
they, they all they're, they're told is they're going to have to dig a tunnel in secret somewhere. And they practice out in New Mexico and, you know, assemble all this equipment that's, um, has to be sent to, um, to Germany. And, um, yeah, so, um, and George Blake, as you mentioned, becomes aware of this project, um, almost from the start, uh, because he's, he's overseeing, uh, helping oversee some of these communication intelligence operations, but he, uh, is one of perhaps three or four people in British intelligence who know about it. So, um, he's, uh, he's in a very vulnerable position. So even though he, he informed, he, he meets on this double decker bus in London, um, in early 1954, as, as this project is, is, you know, you know, hasn't even the first spade full of, of uh, soil hasn't even been dug at this point, but he's, uh, he's reporting to his KGB handler about this, but in the KGB, uh, and when we say the KGB again, um, this is, we're talking a, a, about a, a couple of people, Ivan Serov, the, the head of the KGB is informed about this and he makes the decision that they're, they're not going to tell anybody about this. Um, including the KGB chief in, in Berlin is kept in the dark, uh, at least initially and, and the red army, uh, whose lines are, are going to, are vulnerable. Um, they're the commander of all, uh, Soviet forces in Germany is, is kept in the dark. So, uh, the Soviets are very, uh, interested in protecting George Blake, um, as, as this mole. And if they do anything to block the tunnel, um, Blake is going to be blown sky high. Yeah. It, you reminded me of another uh, aspect of the book that I think is so enjoy, enjoyable is you have passages where you describe George Blake interacting with somebody from the Soviet Union and how they communicate and how they signal to each other, things of that nature. And it just it's just really interesting. And there's so many sections in the book where it's, okay, now George Blake is going to be meeting with so-and-so and you talk about how he exchanges information, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, um, well, I was fortunate, um, in, in that some of the people who were in, involved in this story are still alive, or at least, uh, they were still alive. Um, when I was doing the research, both on the American side, the, you know, the British, uh, secret intelligence service, um, and, um, also George Blake, uh, is, still alive, 97 years old. And I was able to interview him and, and get details about, um, about how the whole operation works. So, um, uh, also, you know, a lot of research in, in both, uh, well in Germany and the Stasi archives and, um, uh, in uh, London and, and in the United States as well. So I was able to piece together the, the, the story of how it worked. Just approximately, uh, how much time would you estimate you spent researching this book? Um, you know, I, I started in uh, 2014, um, and you know, immediately my my first focus was doing interviews because so many of the people involved in this project were um, at least in their 80s, some in their 90s. One was 100 years old, and um, uh, you know that that took, uh, well, that really continued throughout the, the years I was working on it, but then, uh, also, uh, the archival research. So really the, um, the, the prime research, um, timeframe was about two years, but even after I started writing, um, I continued 
doing research, even though, you know, you're trying to buckle down and, and write the story, but you know, I'd, I'd get new leads, you know, I'd find a new person to speak to or hear, you know, learn about some archive somewhere that might have uh, relevant records. So, um, the research, um, continued really, um, almost till, uh, its publication, uh, uh, six or seven months ago. Yeah. It's, and again, the, the book is entitled Betrayal in Berlin, the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation by Steve Vogel that we're interviewing right now. Uh, I'm really encouraging people, get your hands on a copy of this book and read it. I think you will really enjoy it and find it interesting and entertaining. And it comes across so, so much that you did phenomenal research and you actually spoke with george blake is that correct that is that's true yeah um it was uh i mean that that was um as soon as i decided to do this and you know knowing that george blake was still alive i i knew that i i had to try to um interview him i you know i thought it was kind of a long shot um and um you know just finding him to, to, to get in t uh, contact with him in, in the, in Russia was, was not easy, but, um, um, and you know, I, I more or less, uh, the, my, my first conversation with him, I just called him out of the blue. I, it, it took a while to, you know, trying different sources to find a, um, a phone number for him. I didn't want to go through the, you know, Russian intelligence, uh, services because, you know, basically if you make these requests that they, they just say, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I thought, well, the best thing to do would, was just kind of to, to call him out of the blue and just, uh, you know, introduce myself and told him I was working on this book about the tunnel. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was, he was receptive, um, and, um, ended up uh, talking to him, uh, a, a second time more in depth. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was fortunate for sure. Yeah. Uh, I want to move on to a section of the book, uh, and again, just very interesting, entertaining passages uh, about the actual digging of the tunnel, and you've touched on it already, just the staffing of it and the fact that you'd have people who really, they didn't know other people, or they didn't really know what was going on, but they were involved with something, and just all the... Um, thought that went into digging the tunnel, how to making it a success essentially. And I, I, I remember one passage and correct me if I'm remembering this wrong. Didn't the Americans and British actually decide to build a phony radar site or something to, to cover up where they begun b digging the tunnel? Yeah. I mean, that, that was, um, one of, uh, several covers that, that were used and it, it was almost, you know, kind of a impromptu thing that, that led to the radar station. Um, but, um, I mean, the, the first thing they had to, uh, come up with was, um, because they were digging this tunnel from, you know, it was a quarter mile long tunnel and they are doing it from uh, a point, uh, you know, in, uh, the, right on the American Soviet sector border where, um, kind of a more rural part of Berlin where anything they do is quite visible to the, to the Soviets and East German guards who were, who were along the border there. Um, and if they start, you know, digging a, a tunnel and, and carting away soil, that's going to be quite obvious to, to, you know, anyone. Um, so they did decide to build a warehouse, an army warehouse on this site, um, and use the warehouse 
instead of like trucking off the the fill, they just store all the the, the dirt, the soil in the the warehouse itself, and uh, you know that that um, was the first kind of cover for this this project that it was just some weird army warehouse. But then they just you know they they decided well let, let's um, let's you know they they're going to be kind of suspicious about all this activity at this warehouse. We should give some sort of reason for all this activity. And they came up with the idea of putting uh, radar dishes on the top because um, they were pretty close to a Soviet airfield there. And um, it was a logical place to have a radar intercept station. And in fact, um, the I you know, interviewed the, the CIA's communication site um, director who, who was overseeing that part of the operation. And he just decided that, you know, heck, let's make it a real radar. The be- best way to make mm-hmm. it look real was to make it a real one. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, and so they, they brought in army signal, uh, Corps soldiers who don't know about the tunnel. Um, they're kept, they're in a separate, you know, even though this is a small installation, um, they're kept out of the, uh, the, bowels of the warehouse and they're only allowed up on on sort of the second floor in the the roof where the radar dishes are so the uh, electronic intercept operation is is kept uh, quite separate from the the tunnel operation so it's very compartmentalized yeah very enjoyable section of the book talk reading those those passages um yeah and, and again i know i've already said this but when a person reads this book every once in a while they have to stop and say to themselves this is a real story this all actually happened which makes it all the more enjoyable i mean phony radar site you know (laughs) and and, you know because a lot of it's comical too because you know sometimes you end up with these keystone cop type situations and you know there's the time that um you know they've got air conditioning in the tunnel but um they they um fail to to recognize that all the heat from the equipment that they have to, to, you know, operate the amplifiers and, and so forth, um, is, is going to generate heat along the entire line of the, um, of the tunnel. And, you know, when it snows, you then have like the snow's not sticking on top of the tunnel. It's pointing like a, you know, a neon light arrow pointing, like there's a tunnel here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, people are just running around like uh, chickens with their heads cut off when they, when they notice that. But fortunately the, the snow continues and and it gets covered up. Yeah, that's that's just one of so many classic parts of this book, and that's why uh, I I liked it so much. Uh, that so now you remind me of another topic I wanted to ask you about, which was uh, just the equipment that they use. Uh, there's some fascinating passages in this book where you talk about, well, they're going to use this equipment and they're, they're going to need, you know, X amount of this and X amount of that. And then, and then it turns out when they successfully tap the lines, everybody's saying, wow, this is a gold mine of intelligence um, that the Americans and British are getting on the Soviets. But there's one, one uh, device that you described that if you could, if you don't mind describing it again in this interview, it's something called Bumblebee. Is oh, yeah. that what it was called? Yeah, yeah. The Bumble that was a demodulator, basically. Because uh, okay, what happens is um, just to to give um, uh, more background for you, for your listeners. I mean, the the amount of um, of communications they're intercepting. I mean, the, the, these aren't a few phone lines, you know, belonging to the general or his aides or whatever. This. These are three trunk lines, which are carrying 
all the communications essentially of the uh, the Red Army in Germany, which is you know an enormous force of of uh, close to four hundred thousand um, forces in in Germany and Poland and uh, Eastern Europe. There, um, you know, all these installations are, are linked, and so they they are intercepting a thousand plus communications per day, um, which uh, some uh, a lot of them are telephone, but a lot of them are also teletype um, communications, which um, are being sent, um, you know, or on these, on these cables and some of them are coded and all that. And, and the, um, all of this is being recorded. Some of it is being listened to live by, you know, a team of, of translators there in Berlin. Um, but they have 150 recorders inside this operations room in the recorder in the, in the warehouse, just spinning all the time, these huge tapes being made on these Ampex recorders. And these tapes are being flown almost on a daily basis. Uh, the teletype is being flown to to Washington D.C. and the the voice communications are being f- flown to to London. And they have teams of you know several hundred, and um, both in London and Washington, of translators, of uh, transcribers, analysts, going over this information. They don't really know where it's from exactly. They don't know it's a tunnel, um, but um, for the teletype. Uh, communications. These are being um, processed at this, you know, old temporary uh, leftover World War II building on the, the National Mall in Washington D.C., quite close to the Lincoln Memorial, and it's just a decrepit old building that that used to be there. And to um, to uh, take apart the teletype, the, the teletype tape is being brought in, and, and each one of these tapes has, you know, sometimes six or a dozen different teletype communications on it and they they have to be demodulated so they had this um amazing device that the cia communications um staff had had put together that they nicknamed the bumblebee because you know you you just couldn't believe it was going to fly basically it was this um this uh large um device that that broke apart the communications so that they could be put onto individual um tapes and then uh uh, transcribed by the the team there, so um, it was you know a highly secret machine, and only uh, the operators were allowed in that room. So you know all the the various people that are working uh, transcribing the information would would you know if they wanted anything they would have to knock on the door, and you know somebody would just open it a crack and take you know <laughs> take whatever they needed, and you know all all this stuff is being uh, stored in in. Um, safes in the in this decrepit building and you know they have so much stuff there that you know it looks like the the floors are about to collapse at any moment so (laughs) yeah and you can tell i'm a fan of this book but that 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 topic which you cover quite a bit in the book it's just interesting you know so so uh creative so diligent and uh, so much secrecy and they're getting all this information and so just to circle back to this original this earlier idea uh if in, i think i think it's the case is that the soviets have still done nothing is, is that correct more or less so what happens is um you know the they they are trying to monitor some of the progress of the of the tunnel uh, as it's being dug and um you know blake is is at this point still in london uh in the uh, special section y that's overseeing um the the tunnel operation so he's in a great position to report progress but then 
um, ironically, he, um, well, he's sent to Berlin for a new assignment just as the tunnel is about to become uh, operational, just as they've, you know, they've, they've finished the, the tunnel. They bring in, you know, the British, um, it's a joint operation. So the British were the ones with the great telecommunications experience because they had done a smaller tunnel operation, Vienna, and they brought in these specialists to actually do the taps, which is a very intricate, uh, delicate operation, you know, 27 inches below the surface of a, a you know, a major highway there in East Berlin where, you know, people, East German patrols are, are walking overhead. Um, but they, they get the, the tap done. Um, but, uh, Blake, being in Berlin at this point is no longer really in a position to, to monitor the operation. He can't, because he's no longer responsible, uh, he, he no longer has a need to know. So the, the station chief in Berlin for the British, Peter Lund, um, you know, he can't go up to Peter Lund and say, Hey, you know, how's it going with the tunnel? Um, uh, because that, that would have been a red flag. Um, so the, the KGB's theory on this whole thing was, well, you know, this is the Red Army's, uh, these are the Red Army's communications primarily. Uh, and that's more or less true. But, um, of course, this also includes the GRU, which is the Soviet military intelligence. The GRU deals with the KGB a lot. So while the KGB's lines are protect, they're on these overhead lines that are not being tapped, these protected, uh, highly, um, highly prized lines, the, the GRU communications with KGB in Germany are primarily over these these uh, underground lines that are being tapped. So a lot of the KGB's own communications are being intercepted. And uh, it it's not clear to me at all that the KGB understood this initially um, because the, the scale of, of um, what the, the West was capturing stunned First, it stunned the CIA um, and um, British intelligence, and the uh, the KGB didn't fully understand this initially at first. But they they tried to to uh, give some some very uh, generic cryptic warnings to the uh, Red Army command that you know you should uh, you should be more careful about your telephone security. Um, you know, but they don't say because the CIA and uh, SIS are you know <laughs> dug this tunnel or tapping into your lines. It's it's more kind of vague. Uh, and you know, in these bureaucracies, uh, those warnings are are kind of lost. And so essentially, um, very little was done. And um, after after about six months of operation, the, the the KGB realizes that that something has to be done uh, to to put a stop to this, but they're still afraid of, of exposing Blake. Um, so they, they have to come up with a very elaborate scheme, uh, to, uh, to discover quote unquote, the, the tunnel in a way that, that protects Blake. And, you know, they have to wait for the right series of events. Uh, you know, the, the weather, you know, it's a, as you know, kind of a, <laughs> a kind of a crazy story as to how that all happens, but they, you know, they need to, to wait for, um, excuse to go out and send crews out to, to look for short circuits in the line. So that, that doesn't happen until the tunnel has been in operation for close to a year. Yeah. And the section that you're talking about is another great section of the book, which is very, very interesting. This sort of staged discovery of the, of the tap, so to speak. Um, but another part of the book I thought was so interesting is that the Soviets thought that if they 
bring this tapping and this tunnel to the attention of the press, it's going to cause a certain reaction that is uh, favorable to the Soviets. But it really didn't turn out that way, did it? No. Um, and, you know, it's it's uh, a lot of things didn't turn out as they expected, both for the you know CIA and the Soviets. Because, you know, Bill Harvey and Peter Lund were they were pretty confident that, you know, once the Soviets find this tunnel, they're, they're going to keep it quiet, you know, because this is going to be huge embarrassment for them. So they weren't too worried about that. They were more concerned about the, you know, uh, physical security and Bill Harvey, you know, in typical fashion, cause he, he, you know, he loved weaponry of all kind. He, he had, you know, laid this, uh, explosive C5 explosive through the entire length of the tunnel. And he wanted to blow the tunnel, you know, once, once the Soviets discovered it, you know, with the Soviets inside, but, um, you know, he, he was, um, he didn't get approval for that. Um, but, um, the Soviets instead, um, the idea is they, they're trying to pressure the West to get out of Berlin because, you know, Berlin is a vulnerable spot for them that, you know, they've got the iron curtain has been pretty effective, but Berlin is, is, you know, kind of this, um, thorn in the Soviet sides as, um, Nikita Khrushchev, the uh, Soviet leader, um, considers it so he you know they're, they're trying to put pressure on the west to get out of berlin and this tunnel kind of plays into the narrative that the the soviets are trying to promote that the americans you know that they're not here to protect the berliners they're they're using berlin as this as a nest of spies and the tunnel you know is 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 made like uh exhibit a for for this story that well it's not really a story because it's true but they, they want to 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 make it uh, clear to the world that that the um, the CIA uh, is involved in this nefarious espionage operation in Berlin, and how dare they uh, violate East German sovereignty? And so they the um, right after the tunnel is discovered, they call every reporter in Berlin on you know, very short notice and and summon them to uh, the, the Karlshorst, which is the the Red Army and, and KGB headquarters in in Berlin. And for this this press conference, the, the Soviets hadn't held a press conference at that point in about six years in, in Berlin for for Western reporters, but they're all summoned on short notice. And you know the Red uh, Red Army Colonel brings them out to the site of the the tunnel at you know at night. It's all lit up, and they they actually bring the reporters down into the tunnel. And you know they're they uh, you know they they are just beating the drum about what an outrage this is. And um, but as it as it turns out um in the west the 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 coverage is is quite positive because up to this point the cia really hadn't um you know in the eyes of western uh press at least had, had not accomplished a whole hot, uh, a whole lot of anything um and this was like looked like an operation where they'd finally pulled a fast one on this on the kgb um uh, which was like the you know the the you know the invulnerable KGB as it was considered in the <coughs> excuse me in those days. So, um, uh, it, it instead you know the stories in the West are hey look at that the, the Americans aren't so pathetic after all they've they've actually pulled off this really cagey operation. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that section of the book the way. Uh, just like you said, and, and there's a lot of parts of this book where the reader says, okay, so now this is going to happen. And, but then it doesn't, and it just makes it even more enjoyable to read it. Uh, again, right. we're talking about the book entitled Betrayal in Berlin, 
the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation. We're speaking with the author, Steve Vogel. Um, so, you know, what I wanted to ask you also, you kind of touch on it in the book, is that do you feel that the tunnel operation is regarded as a success through the eyes of the Americans now nowadays? Do you think it is? Well, you know, it's largely been forgotten. You know, it went through a lot of different iteration. So you had that initial phase there where, oh, this it's considered a, you know, a success in the West, in the, in the public eyes, because I mean, the, the, the discovery of the, of the tunnel is a huge story uh, in the West. I mean, it was really the largest um, espionage story of the day until the U2 shoot down a few years later. So um, they, they kind of bask in that. And, you know, the uh, Alan Dulles, um, um, is is elated because this this allows him to go to Congress and get less of a hard time and and easier to get more funding for for the CIA. Um, but uh, things changed dramatically. Of course, um, five years later, in 1961, um, as as the book describes, when when George Blake is uh, suspected and then exposed and and then you know arrested um, by by the the British and and put on trial. Now he he um he confesses very quickly in, in interrogations uh, with uh, um, the British that he had blown the tunnel um you know from from the start. And this is this is a shock. Um, CIA was you know Bill Harvey just exploded. Um, you know at the news he was not uh, he was not somebody who who took news like that calmly. Um, but the um. Um, there was a lot of, obviously quite quite a lot of concern at that point. Then, you know, was this disinformation? Um, and the CIA, this this news, by the way, that Blake had exposed the tunnel is not revealed to the public. So, it's yeah, it's not until you know moving forward in this in the story when, um, of course, Blake is is given this very lengthy prison sentence, and then you know another remarkable. <laughs> one of these you can't really believe it type events he manages to escape from prison in 1966 and and make his way um eventually to um moscow and it's not until this interview with his vestia in 1970 that he he reveals you know publicly that the tunnel had been betrayed from the start so at that point then the the tunnel um becomes this laughing stock um it's like oh the, you know the the uh, the Americans were played the whole time by the KGB. You know they they were you know they were completely you know and and so you have a lot of um, uh, press reports, uh, uh, different um, books uh, you know covering espionage that that pretty much give this flat out description that you know the whole thing was a farce and it was a KGB disinformation from the start, blah, blah, blah. And so that kind of became the accepted narrative. Um, and to the extent, the extent that the tunnel was remembered, because it, it kind of faded uh, into memory, um, it was more or less considered a, you know, a joke at, or just, you know, another example of KGB um, um, just, um, um, just the KGB's uh, amazing skills and how they completely outdo the, the CIA. So it's really only, um, uh, with the uh, the end of the Cold War, that um, more access to records uh, uh, is is given both uh, on the Russian side. Initially, there was um, 
and the uh, George Blake's handler Sergei Kondrashov um, works on a, a history of Berlin espionage with um, one of his CIA counterparts, Dave Murphy, who who was also uh, my dad's boss, and um, you know he he um, basically describes how uh, how they were. Uh, afraid to do anything about the uh, the tunnel because of uh, the, the possibility of exposing Blake, and then um, it, the interviews I've I've done with um, well with Blake and with um, others involved, and um, also an analysis of the information that was done by the CIA and uh, British intelligence. Um, when you think about it, if the Soviets had tried to put uh, disinformation into that you're, you're talking about 400,000, you know, over a thousand communications a day. So if they, if they put disinformation into say five conversations or five, it's going to be contradicted by the, um, uh, you know, other 955 conversations <laughs> that are true. They, they can't put everybody in on the You can't have like thousands of, of soldiers all over East Germany, you know, Oh, wink, wink, you know, the, you know, putting putting out false information because that would that would you know completely um defeat the purpose of protecting blake because it would become very quick uh clear quickly that there'd been a leak so um basically the kgb's tie, uh hands were tied and this is what um all the the evidence shows and so now um i think um it, it it's clear i i think that the book makes a, a pretty strong case that um the the tunnel information was genuine that the so uh, there's no uh, evidence at all that anything was uh, that any bad information was put in and that um, the the tunnel essentially provides the West with an enormous amount of information about the Red Army's capabilities and um, you know it's basically its order of battle but pos- probably the most inf- important thing it it um, provides is the uh, confidence that the Soviets are not planning an attack on on the West, and this this gives uh, Eisenhower, um, you know, the a great great deal of, of confidence uh, that you know he doesn't need to to order his own strike. And it really, um, we also get a lot of information about uh, the Kremlin and Khrushchev because their communications back with with Moscow, and information about the Soviet nuclear uh, program. So they 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 draw quite a bit about it. In fact, it takes another two years after the tunnel is discovered to, to process all the information. And, you know, Richard Helms um, would later say that um, the tunnel provided inf- intelligence that was still being used a decade or more later. Wow. Yeah. Now, the, in, the, in the latter part of the book, uh, and again, this book is just packed with plot twists, and you kind of alluded to this next section, which I found so interesting, is that uh, George Blake is finally identified as a mole, but he was identified by another spy? Is that how it happened? Yeah. Um, it was a, a Polish um, military intelligence officer who um, who has... Um, who approaches the West um, starting in the late 1950s and he's, he's giving them, he's telling them basically that, you know, the KGB has a mole inside um, British intelligence and he gives them, he shows them documents that this mole has provided. And George Blake is one of the very few people that who would have had access to that information 
So the, the CIA who gets this information from the the, the Polish um, uh, military intelligence officer who who would eventually defect to the West, um, you know, British intelligence at first dismisses the idea that that Blake could be a, a spy because he's so highly regarded and you know it just doesn't seem possible to them that. And um, it takes a while, uh, but but finally, um, after more insistent reporting from from this Polish source, um, you know the British conduct another investigation, and you know finally begin finding some smoking guns that are really uh, pointing to Blake, and he is in he's assigned to 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 uh, Lebanon at this point, and he's lured back to London, and um, you know a trap is sprung, and he. Uh, you know, eventually, well, actually not even eventually, uh, after three days, he, he basically, um, all of a sudden just says, yes, I did it. And he just like confesses as it's kind of a remarkable story, how that all happens, the whole yeah. interrogation and everything. Yeah. And it's, and I, I really like this last section of the book. Um, the, the fact, so you re- here, you, here I am the reader and I, I read in the book, okay, wow, George Blake was just sentenced to over 40 years in prison. And again, you think, okay, I think this is, we're, we're seeing some closure here. But as you mentioned a few minutes ago, he actually escapes from prison. And it's just <laughs> yeah. another incredibly interesting twist to the story. Um, and the way you explain it in the book, it's it's just really exciting. Um Obviously, it's not a good. It's not great when somebody who's committed a crime escapes. But just the way you explain it in the book, because there are passages in the book where I think, I wonder, is George Blake sort of like a low key person? Because he seems to do these very adventurous things. And do you feel? Because I know you interviewed him. Did you feel that he's a low key person who who just happens to like to do very daring things? Or it seems like an interesting contrast of two different. Uh, personalities yeah you know it's it's funny because he's in many ways he's he's mild-mannered um you know he's very uh not excitable and he he kind of exudes um he he, uh a a warmness i guess you could say he a lot of people um who met him over the years found him charming i mean he was he's good at at just sort of um uh getting people to open up and um uh, but at the same time kind of keeping himself as sort of a low key presence. Um, and I think yeah, at the same time, he, he had lived so much excitement, even by the time he was 14, you know, in, in Egypt and, you know, it, it's a, with the Dutch resistance and then his escape across the entire continent of Europe, across the, the Pyrenees, snow covered Pyrenees to escape the Nazis. And, you know, e- you know, even well before, all this happens with the tunnel and, and, uh, his arrest and all that. He, he's led this remarkable, and I think he did truly become kind of, and he, he says as much that he became a little bit addicted to that, that sort of, that rush of, of, um, excitement. And, um, you know, I think, um, uh, I think that, that that's part of what, um, that led him on the, on the path he took, but it, it also enables him once he's, at this in in prison, he's able to to charm his fellow prisoners. Who um, generally, when you have like a, a traitor, a spy assigned to, to prison, they're they're they could be in, in great danger because uh, uh, they they could be attacked by other prisoners. That that's happened. Um, but um, in this case, 
Blake manages to make a lot of friends of, across the political spectrum from people, you know, far on the left to people far on the right. They all, the one thing they all in, cap, in common was that they all liked Blake. And, you know, he, he was teaching, he'd teach prisoners, um, um, languages. He'd, he'd hold a French class or a German class, or he'd help them write letters to their lawyers. He, you know, he was always kind of the, the shoulder that they could cry on type of person. And, um, you know, even the guards liked him. <laughs> so he, he's, he's able to eventually recruit some people to, to help him pull off this escape. It's pretty remarkable. And it was a huge embarrassment and disgrace for, you know, the British, um, home office, the, the, all the, 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 which oversaw the prisons. It was just an, an enormous, um, scandal. And, you know, to this day in, 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 Great Britain, where George Blake is, is much better known than he is in the United States. You know, it, people still absolutely pull out their hair at the idea that Blake managed to escape and is still, you know, out there living, living in a dacha outside of Moscow. Yeah. So just one of many, many great sections in this book. I enjoyed that, that, that section so much, the, the way you describe all the things that it took to make the escape actually happen. So, um, kind of watching this clock out of the corner of my eye. I can't believe that we've, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, I just want to say again, we're talking with Steve Vogel, who is the author of Betrayal in Berlin, the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage, espionage operation. And I'm encouraging everybody to go out and get a copy of this book. I'm positive you're going to enjoy it. So, um, Steve, I wanted to ask you, I enjoyed this book so much. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. What's coming up from your world? You know, I, uh, I'm actually just still kind of <laughs> recuperating a little bit from putting this together. I'm, I'm catching up on some smaller projects. You know, I'm, I'm sort of um, thinking about, um, you know, doing some more uh, work on other um espionage operations, but I really haven't narrowed it down yet. I'm, you know, I've sort of jumped around from, uh, you know, I think it's part of being a journalist is that you kind of like, you get interested in a lot of different topics. So, I mean, you know, my last book was about the war of 1812, the, the, you know, the capture of Washington uh, by the British. And then another book about, you know, the, the Pentagon, the construction and during world war two, and then through the nine 11 attack. So, you know, I, I don't know, I might, I might stay with this, this general theme, or I might end up doing something completely different, but you know, I'm, 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 I'm starting now to, to realize I, I need to come up with something. So <laughs> I'll keep you posted. Yeah. Well, whatever you do come up with, uh, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it thoroughly. And uh, I can't believe how fast this time, I'm just looking at this clock again. I can't believe how fast this time passed. Um, so I just want to close by thanking you once again for taking time out to chat with us a little bit about this book, uh, Betrayal in Berlin. It's a fantastic book, um, and I hope our paths will cross again soon. Yeah, likewise, Porter. I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Okay. Well, that's the end of our interview for today, and I think we're going to sign off. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. <laughs>